right, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, welcome to the September session of the 2014 Geriatric Mental Health Series, Non-Pharmaceutical Approaches to Challenging Behaviors, which is presented by Brenda Jordan. And I know we have some of the nursing series people joining us today, so welcome. The Northern New England Geriatric Education Center and the Advancing Competency in Geriatric Care Programs and our activities are funded by the Health Resources and Services Administration. This funding allows us to offer this program at no charge. Our work is to enhance the care of older adults by offering a comprehensive interprofessional education program targeted to the healthcare workforce and emphasizing evidence-based best practices. In order to receive credit for this program, you must be signed in legibly so that you can uh, so be sure that you've signed the attendance sheet if you're at a remote site. If we can't read your handwriting, we cannot award you credit. If you're watching online for your, from your desktop and don't have a site liaison, you need to complete a form online very soon after the program. You should have instructions for that, but if not, email geriatric.ed at dartmouth.edu. That was geriatric.ed at dartmouth.edu. Or call 603-653-3443. You should also have received a form that tells you how to obtain your continuing education credits online. Please be sure to keep that sheet so you can refer to it later. If you have cell phones, please silence them now if you haven't already. If you're at a remote site, please mute your audio. It sounds like everyone is muted, so thank you. If you have a question before or during or after the presentation, unmute your audio and get the speaker's attention by raising or waving your hand. None of the planning committee members for this series, including today's speaker, have any influencing financial relationships to disclose, and there will be no off-label uses discussed. Our speaker today, Brenda Jordan, is currently a practice manager and geriatric nurse practitioner at Dartmouth-Hitchcock-Kendall, as well as co-project director for the CJEP grant. Brenda is a board certified as a gerontological clinical specialist, adult nurse practitioner, and advanced practitioner in palliative care. Brenda graduated from the University of Bridgeport with a bachelor degree in nursing and then from UNH with a master degree in nursing and continued post-master study at UNH to become a nurse practitioner. During her professional career, she's been a clinician, an educator, and an administrator. She's written professional articles and authored chapters in primary care text and has presented at numerous conferences regionally and nationally in her specialty of geriatric care. Brenda, thank you. Thank you, Laura. And welcome everybody from the other sites. It looks like there's a good number of you. I will try to pay attention. So if you um, don't get my attention by a simple arm wave, do whatever you need. I'll try to look over there periodically. <laughs> um, I'm gonna talk today about um, non-pharmaceutical approaches to behavioral and psychological symptoms with dementia. Um, and this is a very significant problem we have in geriatric care um, in all venues, whether it's at home, whether it's in nursing home, assisted living, or in hospitals. Today our objectives are to uh, describe the most common behavioral and psychological symptoms that develop, recognize the cause of these symptoms, discuss strategies that work, to reduce the anxiety that we believe really triggers these symptoms. These are the behavioral symptoms that occur in patients who have dementia. And you'll see that the percentage of times these symptoms occur is 61 to 92 percent in people who have dementia. So you can pretty much assume that everybody who has dementia 
at some point will develop some of these troubling symptoms. We know that the symptoms most often de um, develop as people move into the moderate to severe stages of dementia, but there are people even in early stages of dementia who become quite paranoid um, and believe things that just are not true. So even though we know mostly this occurs in moderate to severe dementia, it can occur at other times. So what causes this to happen? Well, what we understand is dementia causes damage to the brain. Normal functioning brain tissue is completely entangled in um, uh, the changes that happen with Alzheimer's disease or vascular um, supply to the brain is interfered with when people have vascular dementia. But the result is there is damage. And particularly, we're focusing on the right hemisphere of the brain and the right frontal lobe when we talk about behavioral and psychological symptoms, because these are the areas of the brain that are mediators of social and emotional behavior. So what happens when this damage occurs in these parts of the brain is behavior is no longer under the conscious control of the individual. They really do not have the ability to stop thinking what they're thinking, doing what they're doing, believing what they're believing. So what are the triggers that cause these symptoms to appear? The damage causes the behavior to be likely to happen, but what really makes those symptoms happen? Well, here's this brain. It's no longer able to process what's going on around it. It's damaged. It doesn't have the ability to figure out things the way we figure out things. Can't look at a surrounding, look at a person, and figure out kind of what's going on. They can't make sense of it. And what also is happening at the same time is they're becoming very emotionally perceptive. If any of you have spent a great deal of time around people with dementia, they can feel what's going on, even if they can't figure out what's going on. So it's very important to be aware of that. People with either dementia or delirium are very perceptive and sensitive emotionally, and we, we just really have to use that to our advantage rather than our disadvantage, and I think very often um, we get involved in creating a disadvantage that way. So what we have to do as caregivers is really be very conscious of how we present ourselves to the person with dementia. We don't want to be anxious. We don't want to be in a hurry. We, heaven forbid, we don't want to be angry or impatient um, because the impaired person will sense this and often when they get distressed, that's when behaviors happen. The University of Iowa, GEC, has developed a really um, wonderful program through doing research. Uh, this research is supported by the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality, and a program has been developed to improve antipsychotic appropriateness in dementia patients. So what the focus of this program has been about is to try to decrease antipsychotic use. What they have done is develop multiple tools to assist clinicians in managing symptoms without drugs. This is the website. 
And I'm going to come back to this slide in a minute. I'm going to leave the slideshow because I want to show you some of the things that are available through this website, which I just am so impressed with. So this is what the website looks like when you go to it. If it would stay open. Um, when you first go to the website, it asks you to log on in your specialty. So you can log on as a physician, as a nurse, as a social worker. Um, I, of course, logged on as a nurse practitioner. When I, now that I'm logged on, I have the ability to look at all of these products. There are training videos, pocket guides, There's a delirium assessment and management tool. Oh, it's going to make me log on again. I thought this would happen, so I saved a couple of these tools to my desktop so we could look at them. So these are two that I particularly find very helpful. This is the algorithm for treating behavioral and psychological symptoms. It's kind of a very busy chart, <laughs> but as you can see across the top, it talks about unmet needs. And we're going to talk about unmet needs when I get back to the slide uh, presentation. Then it really takes you down through non-drug interventions. Select and apply non-drug interventions, and it gives you a variety of options. With the idea that what you're doing is trying to make adjustments to meet the person's needs and therefore diminish the need for the behavior. So that's one incredibly useful tool. And like I said, it's completely available on this website. The other one that I think is wonderful is another one that talks about caring for people with dementia, problem behaviors. And it's kind of not quite as busy and presents the material in a different way, but talks about common causes of behavior. Consider the following assessments. So it, this one includes assessments. And then talks more about um, managing with non-drug approaches. These you know, can come in a piece of paper that you can fold up and put in your pocket. They actually can be laminated, and there are places that fold them and laminate them. The idea with the research that's being done is they recognize that usually the interactions that bring about behavior usually happen at the bedside or one-on-one -on -one with a patient. And if the person who is providing the care and having that one-on-one -on -one interaction has the ability to look at a quick resource and say, okay, what do I need to think about? What could be going on with this patient that I need to do an assessment? Are they having a lot of pain? What can I do about that? Uh, and then follow through appropriately. So these are tools that can be made readily accessible to any clinician who is working with patients with dementia. Um, we actually keep laminated copies of these cards attached to our medication carts in our assisted living in our nursing home um, at Kendall so that the nurses can take a look. And we get much more thoughtful phone calls now. I get calls about patients, they think maybe they're having more back pain because they're agitated. 
And sure enough, if we address that back pain, the agitation goes away or the aggressiveness goes away. We had a gentleman who was being very aggressive, but he was having a terrible time walking and was known to have very bad knee arthritis. We tried many interventions to address his pain, finally went to a fentanyl patch that he couldn't tear off. We put it between his shoulder blades because he wouldn't take pills, he wouldn't take liquid. He got comfortable and he became charming. He just was no longer yelling, angry, aggressive. Uh, pain was managed and the behaviors stopped. So when we allow clinicians who are working with patients to have resources available to them so that it really can help them think through what the problem might be, it works. Yes? I'm sorry, a question. Yeah. Are some of these resources also appropriate for family, do you think? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, the, the language is probably written at the level of a professional. But if you look at it, none of this is terribly complicated. You know, we're going to talk about unmet physical needs. Certainly family members can understand that. So what do they need to think about if your family member has become newly agitated? Well, do they have pain? Do they have an infection? Um, you know, we know a lot of our older adults develop um, even a upper respiratory infection and they get very agitated. And certainly things like a urinary tract infection or something more serious like a bronchitis, they are not going to be okay. Dehydration and nutrition um, are significant problems. Um, I, I would say 100% of the older people I take care of do not drink enough fluid, so everybody's dehydrated. Um, and certainly that is true for a lot of our patients with dementia. Um, so we have to remind family members and uh, other caregivers to make sure you've got somebody who's well hydrated and is getting enough to eat. We often see people who get very agitated when they're hungry and we can't figure out into, in, unless we offer them some food and then they settle right down. Sometimes a behavioral or psychological symptom is because there's a medication they're being given that's causing side effects. So we have to look at medications the person's receiving and if that's causing trouble. Probably the uh, most significant example of that is often we know Aricept will cause loose stools to happen with patients. And that can be very distressing, even if you don't have dementia. <laughs> um, constipation, incontinence, uh, sleep disturbances, sensory deficits. You know, a lot of our older adults have very poor vision with macular degeneration, have very poor hearing. Um, and just think of the person who also has poor cognition. Um, they're kind of suffering from a complete sensory deficit. The next group of unmet needs we're going to talk about is the psychological unmet needs. And I think this is one um, we don't, don't often think of uh, with dementia patients. We have to appreciate that they may feel very lonely at times. Um, often their ability to participate in activities and be social with their friends becomes limited by their dementia. So they really have a sense of loneliness and loss of intimacy. 
um often the relationship between spouses changes when a patient has dementia and patients respond to that people with dementia respond to that boredom is often a problem um, we often find that having therapeutic activities or uh, enrichment activities available to people really helps them engage and not um, wander, um, become aggressive. We've even had some people who've gotten aggressive when they don't have something to do. Apprehension, fear, and worry. You know, when you can't process the world around you, it can be pretty scary. You know, when you don't recognize that the person who just walked into your room is the same caregiver who walked into your room two hours ago and is the nurse who's taking care of you um, today, that could cause a lot of distress. You know, what are they doing here? What are they going to do to me? What do they want me to do? Um, emotional discomfort of any kind, just that we often have that sense with some of our dementia patients that they just can't figure out what's going on. And if we give them some time and space, they often are able to um, settle down. If one person approaches them and you know assists them to maybe sit and have a cup of coffee or some water and just sit, it helps. Uh, often there's emotional discomfort we don't understand. And often there's a lack of socialization and enjoyable activity, and I think this happens much more often when people are living at home. Um, when people are in, a, say, assisted living facilities, there's a real effort made to engage people in enrichment activities. But when people are at home with maybe only a spouse or a child to interact with, that lack of socialization and enjoyable activity can be a problem. And then there are environmental causes. Um, level of stimulation, whether it's too much or too little, noise, confusion, lighting changing. We know that probably one of the um, precipitants of sundowning is the change in light that occurs at the end of the day, as well as the fatigue that sets in at the end of the day. We've had a construction project going on at Kendall for way too long, about a year and a half, and we find that our patients with dementia are either amused by it or totally distraught by it. Um, they either, it's something for them to watch, to interact with the, um, the workers who are there, or they just don't understand what all the noise and confusion is about, and it's very upsetting to them. How caregivers approach people is a really important part of the environment that um, dementia patients live in. Whether the caregiver is a family member or a nurse or um, a, pay, a professional who comes into the home, no matter who it is, we have to really be very conscious of how we approach patients, what we convey to them when we approach them. Sometimes just not saying anything and approaching them, you know, with a smile on your face and just um, understanding they're probably not going to understand your verbal communication, but if you maintain a decent kind of uh, 
atmosphere around you, <laughs> an engaging, calming approach to patients, they respond to that very well. Um, institutional routines and expectations are also a huge issue and actually in a, just a little bit I'm going to talk about some of the research the University of North Carolina has been doing about care activities and, um, and a lot of the work around person-centered care which I think is uh, hugely helpful to patients with dementia. Um, and in these, um, in these research projects and the approaches that people are taking, they are really abandoning routines and expectations and trying to identify what pattern is appropriate for that person and go with it. The other thing is sometimes there's just not the cues and the prompts so that people can't figure out what it is they're supposed to be doing, what you expect of them. And then, of course, there are psychiatric causes that can cause behavior. We know that patients with dementia um, have experienced depression and anxiety. We often treat people with um, antidepressants who have dementia. Um, we know that delirium can happen when people have dementia and experience a medical illness. Um, and we have to remember that delirium is really a uh, warning signal that somebody is very sick um, and we need to look at them physically and identify what is physically going on with them that needs to be changed. We have people who um, get delirious with infections, with metabolic disturbances, with um, being extremely hypothyroid. There are many reasons deliriums can occur. There uh, can be psychoses where people have very elaborate delusions and sometimes auditory hallucinations that go along with them. Uh, we have a gentleman right now who we're taking care of and he, he thinks he was moved to a completely different place and that there are people coming into his room on a regular basis talking badly about him because he can hear them. And this is pretty common. Um, and then there can be other mental illness. There are also people who develop dementia who have primary diagnosis of bipolar illness and schizophrenia. And so you have to not only pay attention to the dementia, but also to their prim primary mental illness. We know that in patients with dementia, when they are overwhelmed by what's going on about them, when they really can't process what's going on and they're being pressed to do something and they just can't do it. Um, it there's a catastrophic reaction that happens and this is usually when um, caregivers or staff get hurt. Um, it's when the patient just doesn't know what to do but to yell and to lash out. So we really try to, try to avoid catastrophic reactions but they do happen. And it's a defense mechanism when people have dementia, that they just, they have to stop what's going on and so they react catastrophically. We also do know that when people get moved, they can be moved to a different room, um, moved from home into an institution, they become sick, they have to go into a hospital. Just the, the fact that they have been moved from a familiar place to an unfamiliar place causes a very well-documented translocation-dislocation uh, syndrome. 
it is usually something that um, passes with time. Uh, as people, actually, this is a time when dementia is very helpful because they get into a new environment. They kind of forget about the older environment after a couple of days, settle into the new environment, and it's over. Um, but it requires a fair amount of support to help people get there. Symptoms are usually pretty bad during the first few days and then will disappear if we're patient enough to just give people time and make, sh and make sure we provide them with support. Agitation and aggression, we know that occurs in 25 to 50% of people with dementia. Um, as I said earlier, most of these symptoms are much more prevalent in the moderate to severe forms of the disease. Um, and it, aggression and agitation are provoked by different mechanisms. Misunderstanding, they, people may not understand what you're saying, they may not be able to hear language anymore or interpret it. They don't remember things. Um, I often see um, staff who will say, but don't you remember, you know, 10 minutes ago we said you were going to take a shower. Well, they don't remember 10 minutes ago. Um, and that just gets them more agitated. They're frightened by paranoid delusions. Uh, the prevalence of paranoid delusions is very significant. And often people believe they're um, being hurt or they're going to be taken somewhere or people think badly about them. Um, depression also uh, tremendously causes people to be agitated and aggression, uh, aggressive. One of the most dramatic examples of this was there was a retired um, Episcopal um, priest who uh, moved to Kendall with his wife and he had er probably early to moderate dementia. Well, as he moved into the more moderate phases of dementia, he became very angry and aggressive to the point where his wife was afraid of him. Um, we were not even sure we could manage him within our environment because he was just so threatening physically to everybody. Um, we got a consult from um, Dr. Santuli. This was a few years ago. And he suggested that we treat this man with antidepressants. He really thought he was depressed. It was dramatic. Um, within two weeks, he was calmer, not aggressive, not agitated. He truly was just horribly, horribly depressed. So there are times when agitation and aggression can be caused by a major depressive uh, episode. And then, of course, sleep being disordered never helps anything. And we often see people who are aggressive and agitated when they're just not sleeping. Um, and then the emphasis needs to be on trying to find a way to get them to rest for periods of time. Paranoid delusions, 34 to 70% of people have delusions at some time. The common themes we see are the homes being invaded, personal items are being stolen, Family members are being replaced by imposters or spouses are unfaithful. And the last one, the spouses being unfaithful, can just be so heartbreaking to spouses. And you, you, there's just no convincing the patient that this isn't true. Um, so this is really difficult when people um, have these beliefs. Uh, interestingly enough, 
uh, the paranoid delusions of dementia do not seem to respond in any way to antipsychotics. So it's just, it's not one of those things we want to use medicines for. Usually what we try to do is just try to have them talk to us about um, how they feel about all of this um, and really try to redirect them if we can. Um, have family members maybe not visit for a while if the family members are triggering the, the delusions. Um, and eventually, eventually the delusions usually settle down. Hallucinations, auditory hallucinations do happen a lot with the paranoid delusions and again, like the delusions, don't seem to respond very well to any type of antipsychotic. Um, visual hallucinations uh, happen often in patients with Lewy body dementia. So if you have a patient who has dementia who starts seeing animals and seeing, there are certain themes. Children and animals seem to be very uh, frequently what they see. This is usually indicative of Lewy body dementia. It's also a harbinger of really advanced disease and not a very good prognosis. Um, treatment isn't needed if the patient's not bothered by the hallucinations. Now, if they see things, but it's really not anxiety provoking for them, there's really no need to do anything. Um, the only times that the visual hallucinations uh, really require some kind of intervention is when the person believes that what they see is harmful and is going to try to hurt them or somebody else and they try to fight back. And that can get to be very complicated. And like I said, the presence of um, visual hallucinations is just very bad prognostically. Wandering um, happens a lot. Uh, we believe it is primarily because of the distractibility of patients who have dementia and a restlessness um, that leads to the wandering. So effective strategies usually focus on periods of activity and engagement in activities and then periods of rest. Um, some of our most uh, significant wanderers take daily walks with staff members um, and good long walks so they feel like they've done something. Um, we make sure they're engaged in activity when they're awake and make sure they have rest periods and it really does diminish the wandering tremendously. The biggest issue with wandering especially if it's happening in the home with a patient who's still living at home, of course, is the risk of physical harm and death. And we hear in the news on a very regular basis about people who've wandered away from their homes and die. So wandering is very risky and it's very hard to manage in the home. That's often when families decide they really have to um, institutionalize a person with dementia. So, non-pharmacologic behavior management. When I get to this slide, I always like to think that the behavior we're really trying to manage is our own <laughs> because we're trying to manage how we respond to what's going on with dementia. We, um, we can influence their behavior, but the behavior we're actually managing is our own. So we want to keep things really simple. We want to use things that, are, that we know are effective and will reduce anxiety and reduce the triggers of the behavior. And 
it will be different for every patient we interact with. A particular um, strategy with one patient may not work with the next person. So it's important to really understand the people we take care of, really understand who they are, where they came from, what in their past experience has made them anxious, stay away from that. What in their past experience has been very supportive and reassuring to them? So we really have to depend on families to help us gain more knowledge of the patient. And um, this is really the whole basis of person-centered care in dementia. There's also been research done about strategies that work. Um, alteration in approach to personal care, and we're gonna move on to that in the next few slides. Aromatherapy, very effective. Um, on our dementia unit, we use lots of lavender and lemon and um, lots of music therapy. Um, pets are often very soothing unless people are terrified of them. We had one woman, we didn't find out until too late, she was terrified of dogs. Um, <laughs> So we didn't do that anymore. Um, but pet therapy can also be accomplished not only with live animals, but there are some amazing um, animals, particularly cats that purr and move, and dogs that are life-size. We have a life-size dog in the living room down in our um, dementia unit. And during the day, the administrator brings her dog with her to work, but during the evening, patients sit next to the, to the big dog and pet them. So there are ways to get that kind of soothing comfort from a pet, even if you don't have live pets in your facility. So creative approaches to personal care. As I mentioned, the University of North Carolina Center for Aging has been doing uh, research, um, inter, what is it? not interdisciplinary, Laura. Interprofessional. Interprofessional research, <laughs> thank you, about bathing and other uh, personal care strategies. So there are a couple of different um, websites uh, that I'm gonna um, show you. The first one is about bathing without a battle. And I'm hoping maybe some of you got to come to the program we had about a year and a half ago where the researcher who worked on this um, came and spoke and showed some video. But this is the website for bathing without a battle. Um, and it talks about all of these different bathing strategies. Um, the towel bath, the recliner bath, the toilet or commode bath, the singing bath. I haven't seen that one yet. I think I'm gonna look at that video later. <laughs> the seven day bath, <laughs> the under the clothes bath, <laughs> the shared shower. <laughs> um, and then it goes on to really describe what each of these is. And there, is, there are videos, training videos, and a book um, that they have published that really talks about how to alter this very provocative type of personal care. I often like to say, you know, nobody ever taught us that going to the bathroom and taking a shower was a group activity. So why would we think that a person with dementia would be happy about that? 
Then the other, um, the next piece of research they've moved on to do is, got a real touchy computer today. Um, they're doing more research about mouth care. Um, it's often very difficult to provide mouth care to people with dementia or delirium who don't understand what you're trying to do, but they're really trying to reduce um, uh, disease and they really think a lot of pneumonias um, in older adults are aspiration pneumonias and come from overwhelming bacteria in the mouth because people aren't receiving appropriate mouth care. So this is, you know, a huge endeavor to try to identify ways in which um, people can receive mouth care and maintain better health. And the researchers are part of social work, family medicine, public health, and dentistry um, at UNC. So there's a lot of really wonderful research going on to help us figure out how to best approach patients and provide them care. Other things that we um, find very helpful, okay. The reason we want to um, find things that are helpful is we want to help the people we care for. We want to help the caregivers who are caring for these folks, but we want to really prevent caregivers from the burnout that happens, the stress and burnout, um, when these behaviors happen and they don't feel they have uh, a way to address it. They feel helpless. They feel they can't do anything about it. And it has been a major reason um, that nurses and LNAs leave their jobs in healthcare when they're taking care of patients with dementia. They just really don't know what they can do. So what I love about this research is it's trying to identify lots of things we can do to address what's happening. But I think there are two strategies that are very effective in helping us manage our own stress with caring for patients with dementia. And it helps us really maintain, um, maintain ourselves in a way that we don't think about drugs being the first answer for behavior. And I think it's we have to blame the disease, not the person. How many of you have had the experience of a family member being mortified by what a person is doing and saying, oh, my husband or wife would be humiliated if they knew they were doing this right now. Um, and we have to explain to caregivers, you know, this is not your husband or wife anymore. This is this disease that has done this to them. Um, and blaming the disease really allows us a way to kind of back up a little bit, think about what we need to do, and not blame the person. The other thing is to interpret behavior, uh, as I said earlier, according to knowledge of the person's history. You know, you may find out that um, a gentleman lost his mother when he was seven years old, lost his father when he was 12 and had to go live with two um, you know, two aunts who brought him up. That has great implications for whether he might get along better with women or might not get along with women at all. So if we know these things about the people we're caring for, we can do a much better job. 
Other strategies consist in caregivers as much as we can, even if the person doesn't necessarily recognize the person day to day. We have found that consistent caregivers, and lots of other research has found, consistent caregivers kind of know how to approach the patient. They're managing their behavior so that they can interact with each patient in a very effective way. Um, we know this because when we have our consistent caregivers have a day off, it's always more of a struggle that day when the replacement person is there. We know that planned soothing activity really helps decrease restlessness and anxiety. Probably music is the thing that is most widely established as a very soothing activity. The other things that are often done are reminiscence or reading with people um, and simple reading that has a lot of pictures that people can look at. Regular exercise, even if it's as doing a chair fitness. Um, there is an exercise class every day um, called Sit and Be Fit. And people sit there and try to do what the leader is showing them to do. Um, this is an activity we have just before lunch. And we find it makes people enormously hungry for lunch after they do this activity. And then they're ready for a nice nap, which is exactly what they need. So you want to have periods of activity, and then you want to have periods of rest. Um, approaches of person of different genders or ages get different responses from people. So if there seems to be a significant reaction that happens every time a person is approached by a person of a specific gender or a specific age, we may want to control for that. There may be a reason that's happening. Um, we want to reduce stimulation appropriately. We want quieter environments with fewer people. But we want adequate stimulation. So we want right amounts of light, and right, right amounts of um, people around, but not overwhelming. Um, I just often think of the years I worked in the hospital and what an incredible noisy place a hospital is 24 hours a day and how even people who are cognitively intact come home and talk about how they didn't sleep the whole time they were there. Um, so we really want presence of adequate stimulation and we, we have to manage that and we can manage that, the person can't manage that. And then my very favorite behavioral strategy is distraction, is when you just realize you've gone to a place you shouldn't do, change the subject. Just completely change the subject. And usually it works. Usually it's very effective. It just kind of uh, de-escalates a situation that might be headed in the wrong direction. I put this in here because I think it's important um, to recognize that there are times when medication will be necessary. Um, but it really should be last resort when everything else has failed. Um, we have the occasion rarely to use medications when delusion, delusions and hallucinations create such overwhelming anxiety and such aggressive behavior that it's creating danger for our patient, for other patients and for our staff. And then we have to do something. 
Um, sometimes even when that occurs, it's possible to manage it, but it's very tricky. The other thing we have to recognize um, is that antipsychotics don't do anything but sedate patients with dementia. They've not shown to be of any benefit in treating the symptoms. So we have to understand if that's what we're doing, we are just sedating people. Also, the atypical antipsychotics, which most of us are familiar with, um, the things like Respiradol and um, Seroquel and um, Zyprexa, um, Abilify, every time I turn around there's another one. Um, but all of those atypical antipsychotics contribute to morbidity and mortality, may contribute. And the FDA has not even approved these drugs for use with patients who have dementia. So we shouldn't be using them. Um, and hence the big effort by the University of Iowa to develop this program. Um, Medicare, CMS, is really moving to make it almost impossible for uh, patients in assisted living and nursing homes to receive antipsychotics. You have to get written permission from the family and inform them about all of the risks of death. And usually by the time you've done it, the family member doesn't want you to give these medications to people. But it's appropriate because these medications are not helpful and they are potentially dangerous. I'm going to um, share a case study. This one I just um, love. <laughs> Little lady, her first name was Minnie, 96-year-old woman. Um, she arrives at a new nursing home after being kicked out of many others. Um, she's agitated, she's combative, she doesn't eat. She's often hitting staff and even other residents. So what did the staff in this facility do? Well, they allowed her to sleep, eat, and bathe whenever she wanted, even in the middle of the night. They allowed her to eat anything she wanted, and they found out she loved chocolates. So they let her have unlimited chocolate. At 96 years old, why not? <laughs> they gave her a baby doll because they felt she needed something to comfort her. And she, um, she cared for that baby. She took care of that baby. And she would feed the baby and then she would eat. So this research that was done, and this actually happened um, in Phoenix, Arizona. There is a um, uh, nursing home there called the Beatitudes and they are probably the earliest inventors of non-pharmacologic strategies for dementia in this country. Um, the research they've done over years and the research that exists now suggests that creating a positive emotional experience for a patient with dementia diminishes distress and behavior. So if there's anything to remember, it's creating a positive emotional experience will reduce distress and behaviors. And the um, story about this little lady came out of the New York Times, uh, December 31st, it was in the newspaper. And um, it's just a wonderful story. Actually, this nursing home, they had their um, uh, yearly Medicare visit. 
and when the surveyors came, uh, they were going to cite this nursing home because it actually had on the woman's medication administration record that when she got agitated, they should give her chocolate. <laughs> and the um, surveyor was horrified and said, you can't have this on the, on the medication administration record. And the administrator said, would you rather we give her medication? <laughs> um, and the surveyor let go of that. <laughs> But it's a, it's a wonderful piece to read. Um, I'm going to share this case uh, that is a case that um, happened actually at Kendall with a um, patient of ours, I think it was about seven or eight years ago. He was a delightful 79-year-old um, retired physician. He was a family practice doc who'd spent his professional life being the doctor in this little town up in nowhere, Maine, where he grew up. Um, he moved into our retirement community with early dementia, which became more advanced over time. He arrived with a diagnosis of Alzheimer's dementia, um, but as his disease progressed, we decided he probably also had some Lewy body dementia. Um, he is living in the secure unit, our secure dementia unit, because his wife became unable to manage his delusions and hallucinations after two years. He started two years prior to his admission to our secure unit to see children in his apartment. Um, and he didn't seem to be upset by them. He just thought that they were there because he was supposed to look after them. And his wife, who was just an amazing woman, just kind of went with the flow, you know, let us know he was seeing these children, but didn't seem to be bothering him. Um, but then he began to not only see the children, but he began to have delusions that there were people trying to break into the apartment to hurt the children and to hurt he and his wife. And after his wife spent eight hours barricaded in the bathroom with her husband because he wouldn't let her out she decided she couldn't manage this anymore. But this had been going on for two years, and she had him in, in their apartment. So he's now in our secure dementia unit. He seems to be very gradually adjusting to the new, new living situation. His wife visits very frequently because they clearly still have a very um, close relationship. It's early in the morning, it's about 7.30, and um, there's a call that comes from the dementia unit, and they say, you have to get down here. Um, you know, Doug is just screaming and yelling and swinging a portable radio in a mirror. And um, he, would, he kept yelling, the Chinese are coming, and, uh, and everybody should hide. And he was trying to kind of like herd people with with the mirror and the radio, and at the same time was seeing Chinese people and trying to chase them out. Um, so this doesn't look like too good of a situation. So fortunately, he still was at a point with his dementia, he would recognize people who were familiar. So I just walked over to him and I said, Doug, tell me what's the matter. Well, the Chinese are coming, they're gonna get us all, they're gonna hurt everybody, I'm trying to protect everybody. I said, where are they? He said, they're out in the garden. I said, okay, I figured, at least we go out in the garden where we weren't around other people. I said, I'll go out in the garden with you and I'll help you find the Chinese people. 
So we go out in the garden and he's whacking at the bushes and I'm looking in the bushes and he's getting tired because he is after all 79 years old and it's a warm summer morning. So he finally looks exhausted um, and I suggest to him that he should go inside and rest for a minute, give me the radio and the mirror and I'll stand guard out here. So he goes inside and sits down, he's exhausted. I give it a little while, I go in and I tell him that I think they've gone away for the time being. I think we've scared them away. And um, I told him I would take responsibility for keeping the Chinese people out of the building. To which he made me write out a statement saying I would do this. Made two of the other patients witness it. And then he went down to his room and he took a nap. Um, he woke up later and he was agitated about something else and unfortunately that escalated. And it really got to the point where we decided we needed to um, have him evaluated further in the hospital. Turned out it was, um, it was all his dementia. Um, he was put on antipsychotics to try to manage the um, hallucinations and the delusions. Of course, it, it didn't really work very well. He became um, really unable to function because of the side effects of all of the antipsychotics. And he died as a result of the side effects mm. of the antipsychotics, which were the only choice his family felt like they had. So he, he really was coming to the end of his dementia and the end of his life. But even in some extraordinary circumstances, um, behavior can be dealt with in a very different way other than giving people medication. Um, but again, it requires determining what's causing their stress huh. and anxiety. So in summary, <laughs> behavioral symptoms occur when patients uh, with dementia have unmet needs. And these can be physical needs, emotional needs, environmental needs, um, creative approaches to personal care, and attention to knowledge of each patient can diminish the stress that we feel and diminish the stress that the people we care for feel and often eliminate the triggers that cause behavioral symptoms. And medications should be used as a last resort. Um, I'd be happy to take questions from anybody who's left. I see a lot of people dispersing, but if there are any questions, I'd be glad to entertain them. Seeing none. I have one here. Oh, good. We have one from Hitchcock. No. Okay. Hi, Brenda. This is Lee Babcock. Okay. And, um, I have a question about. Um, You've mentioned several times the need for stimulation for these patients and, of course, finding the appropriate stimulation. Um, right. I have a couple patients in mind who <clears throat> they insist on absolute silence. Um, mm -hmm. It's not music. It's not soothing music. It's, it's nothing. They just want absolute silence and uh, their, their, their spouses and caregivers get so annoyed because they can't listen to the news, they can't listen to their music, and they're... they're um, their spouses with dementia are just insisting on silence. Is that um, actually actually no. there's a that is pretty common. We find that often things like radios, televisions, uh, music can be very overstimulating. You know, it's it's too much information. 
the person can't process it, they can't make sense of it, um, it distresses them. So they, and actually we find we don't turn on radio and television very often. The gentleman, oh, by the way, who was chasing the Chinese had watched a MASH episode the night before. And his wife is convinced that that's why he went off the deep end about the Chinese people. So I think it's very often something they just can't tolerate anymore. They can't process the information. They can't take it in and make sense of it. So they just don't want it at all. And actually, if they can be clear about that, that's pretty good. That's really, um, and what happens is the spouse needs to figure out how to meet their own needs um, and respect what the person may need. Yeah, we've suggested like, uh, you know, the iPods with the earbuds and yeah. for, the, for the spouse yeah. so she can listen to her thing. And exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, one other question, um, not really related exactly to behavioral symptoms and management, that sort of thing, but do you have any comments about galantamine and how effective that is? So galantamine is in the same family with um, all of the other uh, anticholinesterase agents like Aricept and Exelon. And, um, and the research we have available to us, most of it done on Aricept, really does not show that it's very effective at all. There is some good research that shows um, that Aricept or an anticholinesterase inhibitor combined with Nemenda, which is a relatively new medication, maybe in the last five to six years, may be more effective. And I think it's actually the Nemenda by itself, because we have found that patients who are on Nemenda alone often seem to um, stay on a plateau a lot longer, and the mechanism of Nemenda is it's protective of certain neuroreceptors in the brain, and I think that protection is actually what helps them. But galantamine, Aricept, all of those medications, really the evidence is they may be helpful in some people sometimes, but um, there's not enough good evidence that we should be using them as much as we use them. Great, thank you. Welcome. Bernie, did you come? Um, that's okay. I think we'll. Okay. Well, thank you all for your attention and um, look forward to seeing you again sometime.